Welcome back to The Urban Monk here in studio with Dr. Laura Schmidt, who is visiting uh, via Skype uh, from UC San Francisco. Uh, she's at the School of Medicine, and man, they've been doing some cool work out there. Uh, going after soda and what soda means to us as a public health disaster and just going after not just the, health, the healthy stuff that we know, but going after the policy and being able to transform how we legislate around this so that we don't put people at risk. And so lots of cool stuff to talk about. Doc, welcome to the show. Yeah, good to be here. And thanks for doing the work that you do. This is, this is important. Thank you. Yeah, this is important stuff. And so let, you know, let's start from the top. I mean, most people already know soda's probably not the best thing for you. Let's get into a little bit of the kind of the public health issue with the sugar in soda and, and why, you know, what's driven you to do this work in the first place. Yeah, a lot of people um, want, ask the question, why sugar, why now? Why is it the new tobacco, these sorts of, uh, why do we care so much all of a sudden? And uh, the truth is that a lot of this is spurred by new science, uh, science that's evolved in the last five to 10 years. And in particular, there are two public health consequences of heavy sugar consumption that were either underappreciated or even unknown up until uh, fairly recently. Uh, the first has to do with um, the appearance of adult onset diabetes in children. So in our parents' generation, they called it adult onset diabetes because only adults got it. Mm. And suddenly uh, we've started seeing an epidemic of diabetes in this not type one diabetes that you're born with, this is type two that you acquire through unhealthy diet, obesity, other related causes, and sugar being one of them, we're seeing marked rise in childhood diabetes to the, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, predict that of children alive today, one in four will be diabetic at some point in their lifetimes. And of those children, children of color, one in two will be diabetic. And so what we're looking at is a, a public health crisis. Uh, diabetes is not a condition that goes away. It gets worse if it's not recognized early on and treated with insulin injections and other, other forms of, um, uh, you can't make it go away, but you can contain it, prevent it from damaging your body further. But if it's left untreated, it leads to blindness, uh, limb amputations, kidney disease, uh, it's it's a big problem for the individual as well as the society when you're talking about maintaining a quarter of our population on um, uh, anti, you know diabetes uh, uh, dealing with the consequences and the complications of type two diabetes as these people age over time. So we're really looking at a down the the barrel of a gun on that one. Then the other uh, fairly recent. Uh, even more recent uh, observation in the scientific community has to do with a condition that didn't even have a name 30 years ago. Uh, it's called uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We think it's affecting about a third of the adult population and about maybe um, uh, a smaller proportion of children, maybe around 13, 11 to 13 percent. The only known uh, risk factors for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or as we uh, say, NAFLD, is uh, the, our uh, trans fat consumption, heavy sugar consumption, and obesity. Uh, soon, in about five years, we're looking at NAFLD uh, will be the number one cause of liver transplantation in America. So this condition that we didn't even have a name for before our obesity epidemic, uh, uh, before we started consuming excess sugar, took the fat out of our diet, put the sugar in, this condition will be the leading cause of liver transplantation. Uh, the liver surgeons here at UCSF that I've spoken to 
are um, really, really concerned about this. Uh, there are a lot of issues. Most of these people are diabetic as well as having fatty liver disease. Once they get a transplant, assuming we have enough livers to go around, there are often uh, problems with their diabetes uh, treatments not doing so well with the anti-organ rejection drugs. It's really a mess. And so this is a condition that uh, we've only recently come to appreciate and this is true, we've now got very solid evidence from animal studies, studies of rats, studies of um, humans in clinical trials and all and, and so forth, population-based evidence to demonstrate that fructose consumption, a, a particular kind of sugar, is uh, definitely linked to the rise in this condition. And this, of course, is a major concern in the, in the medical community. So it's obviously a no-brainer. We're taking this thing, a species is poisoning itself with fructose and causing two things that down the barrel. I mean, I've, I've looked at studies that say like 70% of ER visits are oftentimes sequelae of, of diabetes and things that, that kind of come downstream from having all these out of control kind of internal chronic health issues. And so we now recognize that it's dumb to be doing this. <laughs> it's just dumb as a species. It's, it's what, you know, you, why would you poison yourself? Yet we continue to do so. So fructose is the kind of the, the enemy in this lineup. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Is it just Well, there are different, it's, compl it's complicated because there are different types of sugars and depending on the type of sugar, your body will metabolize it differently. The concern with fructose is that it's almost exclusively metabolized by the liver. Mm -hmm. Our livers are uh, pretty much everything that goes in and out of our bodies gets somehow processed by the liver, goes through the liver. It's a really vital organ. And when you start clogging it up with fat, uh, with this fatty liver disease, it becomes more and more dysfunctional. And that leads to a cascade of problems hormonally. Uh, it, it changes uh, the insulin response, it, we think. It, uh, you know, it has, the liver's a pretty fundamental organ in your body. You don't want to be messing with it. And then uh, other kinds of sugars come in and affect the pancreas, which is the organ in our body that regulates blood sugar. And that's when you start developing type 2 diabetes, you start your insulin resistance, the um, uh, uh, organ responsible for regulating the sugar in your blood, for getting the cells to take up the um, sugars and use them for energy or store them as fat. Uh, becomes unable to regulate your blood sugar. You get out of control blood sugar levels and people wind up in the ER, as you're pointing out. Sure. So, okay, so we have the traditional sugars, sucrose, fructose, all these things. So we, we have issues with um, the pancreas and the ability to kind of move sugar and do things. Separately, we have this new fatty liver thing that fatty we're figuring liver. out. I'd love for you to tease yeah. this out a little bit more because people are now, you know, if I'm hearing fat in the liver, I'm, I'm not getting the sugar connection. Uh, it, you know, so a lot of people don't see the fructose creating the kind of fat deposits in the liver. So I'd love for you to tease that out a little bit. Yeah, sure. So the, the, um, the perfect analogy is alcoholic fatty liver disease, namely cirrhosis of the liver, which is something that we've known about for hundreds of years. If people drink too much alcohol, uh, their liver will become damaged. The liver becomes inflamed. It gets scarred. The scar it becomes, and and that has to do with the deposition of fats in the liver. And eventually, it fails. They become cirrhotic, and they need a liver transplant. It turns out that fructose is um, through the the very same metabolic mechanism. Fructose is taken up by the liver in the identical manner. So people often will talk about people who drink too much get a beer belly. Well, there's also a sugar belly, and there's a reason for that. The exact same mechanism in your liver that transforms ethanol or alcohol will, or metabolizes it, metabolizes fructose. Uh, and th so through this process, de novo lipogenesis, uh, the liver is basically looking at, say, you, say you're sitting on your, on your couch, your couch potato, you're watching the game, and you down a, a giant 48-ounce uh, you know, Gatorade or sugary beverage without, you're not moving around, you're not going to mobilize that um, sugar, the fructose for energy. You're just sitting there on, and maybe it's even taken on an empty stomach. So essentially what happens is that fructose is going to slam your liver 
with this heavy dose of, and your liver's going to say, oh, okay, I better deal with this. Mm -hmm. I got to metabolize it. Because you're not using it as energy and mobilizing it and burning it off, your liver will transform it into fat, uh, transform the sugar, the fructose into fat uh, through this process of de novo lipogenesis. What happens is uh, some of those fats get laid down in the liver itself and some get sent out into the bloodstream, and which will raise what we call triglycerides triglycerides in the bloodstream. So one way you know if you have this problem with fructose, fatty liver disease, potentially metabolic syndrome, we call it, uh, is because when you go to your doctor and you get a blood test, they'll say, hey, you got high triglycerides in your blood. That's a sign that you, you've, you've got a problem. Another way you can know is if you tend to have a lot of fat around the waist. That selective deposition, those fats that go out into the bloodstream, get selectively deposited around the waist, which is why you get that sugar belly. Uh, as it is now, uh, we don't have the be- the greatest way ways of figuring out without doing lab testing on an individual whether they have metabolic syndrome, which is really the precursor for most forms of of chronic disease, not just uh, heart disease diabetes, but interestingly, Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing this tremendous uptick in Alzheimer's disease and probably poor nutrition is a cause of this. But the the, um, short of going into your doctor and getting a blood test to see if you have, uh, um, if you're, uh, if you've got problems with um, uh, hormonal insulin resistance, high triglycerides, uncontrolled blood sugar, the best way to know if you might be at risk uh, for this NAFLD and other related conditions is if you have a lot of visceral fat, it's the, really the only way an individual knows. If you do, it's time to get into the doctor and get assessed for metabolic syndrome. Uh, one of the big pushes right now, we know we uh, diabetes is a silent disease at first. People don't know they've got it. And so we, one of the big pushes in, in, in medicine right now is to get people who are pre-diabetic who are not yet uh, suffering from the permanent irreversible condition, get people screened. And if they're pre-diabetic, they have insulin resistance, there are things that can be done to prevent them from getting the permanent condition. And so that's a big push right now. And that's why we tell people, if you got a lot of fat around your, uh, around your gut, and if you're obese, if your waist is bigger than your hips, those are, those are very important uh, visible signs that you might have a um, uh, a problem that you need to deal with right away. Sure. Don't let it wait. We don't, you know, the worst thing in the world is to go blind, to have your limbs amputated. This is very, um, uh, a re- you know, for the physicians that I work with uh, who are on the front lines, this is really, really um, tragic to see this happening, especially in children. So you are, you know, somewhere maybe 20 feet behind the front lines, looking at the mash unit of people coming in (laughs) on this, and it's a completely preventable, like we shouldn't even be taking these bullets. Exactly. And so let's let's talk about why sugar consumption, it's it's, it's such a no-brainer that we gotta change this, but then we have these sodas in the schools, we have this kind of this sugar industry pushing this stuff and keeping their their products going for commercial reasons. And um, you guys are trying to stop this, obviously. You know, there's a lot of people out there that have been talking about this. You've had some success. I wanna talk about what you've done over at UCSF and talk about how we can set this as a precedent for future successes and, and really kind of just get out ahead of this thing. This, this thing's ridiculous, and so there's no reason we should be waging this war. We got bigger fish to fry, but here we are. Well, the big concern is that we've allowed our food system to just get out of whack. We have Uh, become a population that eats primarily through convenience. We eat processed and packaged foods. These are foods that are designed to have a very long shelf life. Sugar is a great way to increase the shelf life of products as well as salt. Uh, These are, uh, sometimes some people call them Frankenstein foods. They are often scientifically engineered in labs by food scientists to 
get our hedonic system, our reward system into hyperdrive in the brain. There's literally, uh, you know, I come from an addiction research background and food scientists and corporations are taking people and using the very technologies that we developed to cure addictions, namely functional MRI uh, uh, testing of the limbic region of the brain, the reward center, they're using it to figure out how to make a Dorito chip taste better. <laughs> and so we're actually these, the, 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 at this point, we're, it's very, very difficult to, for individuals to turn back the clock and eat like our grandparents did. Uh, you know, Michael Pollan says, don't eat, you know, eat like your grandmother. Well, good luck. You, you know, you got two kids and a two income family and your grocery store, you know, 84 uh, percent of the foods in your grocery store have added sugar. Your kids are uh, you go to school and eat junk. They're used to this. They have our palates changed so that only hyper sweet stuff even tastes good. We're, you know, good luck. That may, puts the individual at incredible a burden on the individual to try to figure out a way to carefully navigate this crazy food environment to find an apple, mm -hmm. uh, to find a drinking fountain. And I have a colleague, Anisha Patel, who does work in schools with water. And uh, in California, we're required to have at least one drinking fountain in the school, <laughs> in the cafeteria. And half the time she goes in and it's like, been, you know, there's a bunch of junk and storage stuff in front of it. Like the kids literally don't have access to water. Wow. And so our food environment has just become completely distorted and out of whack. It's nobody's, no individual's fault. We have a real problem actually with the population and many people blaming the individual for something that is an environmental problem. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if we were all breathing in asbestos and developing lung disease, we'd all say, well, that's not your fault. You need to breathe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we're all eating crap and <laughs> it's all that's around us. We got to eat and yet we blame the individual. And so it really is at this point, it's beyond um, unless you are very wealthy, you have somebody to cook for you. Uh, you have a lot of money to spend on very high priced fruits and vegetables and you have a tremendous amount of willpower and you don't work in a typical workplace with where the food environment's saturated with junk maybe you have a chance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but for most of the population, that's just not a reasonable solution. Mm -hmm. And so we have to look to environmental uh, solutions to the problem. Uh, so uh, you, you asked about what UCSF decided to do last year. Um, on, November, uh, on the 1st of November, the leadership of the university said, we're a health sciences university. We run one of the, you know, one of the, you know, top elite medical centers in the country. We're the second largest employer in San Francisco. What are we doing in the business of selling these products, these sugary beverages that we know cause the very diseases that clog up our hospitals? We're supposed to be about health. What, what should we, what, you know, why should we make a profit off this stuff? Good for and you. And they made the bold decision to just stop selling the stuff. It's, they didn't want it to be moralistic or nanny state or pushing anybody to do what other people wanted them to do. They just said, we're getting out of the business of selling it. And if we take a hit, a, a hit on, on uh, you know, financially, it, we, and, and literally the, the chief medical officer of our medical center, when the idea was um, uh, proposed, said, look, we don't put cigarettes in our vending machines. Why should we put this stuff in our vending machines? Right. Like that's the spirit of it. And uh, during, since then, we've conducted a, a careful evaluation, including doing full physicals and blood testing of a re representative sample of our employees to see what the effects of just this one small change, the university, the, both the medical center and the campus, just stop selling this stuff. We're not saying you can't bring it in, in a six pack and put it in the office fridge. We're not saying you can't go out and buy it somewhere else. We're just saying we're out of the business. And remarkably, we've learned many things a year later. We've seen um, a very substantial decline 
in consumption, especially among our uh, manual and service workers. Hmm. These are, um, you know, the people who are the janitors in the hospitals, and they're the they're typically low income. Uh, uh, individuals who, you know, work in the cafeterias. At the beginning, uh, before we pass the so we're consuming almost a liter a day of soda. By six months later, their consumption was down by 25%, one quarter decline. Uh, we're seeing tremendous benefits uh, in our biomarker study in terms of actual health. And this is just one small change in the food environment, making it just, it's a a gentle nudge, just making it a little harder to um, grab for that soda and making it a little easier. We have lots of uh, over a hundred different bottled beverages in our refrigerators all around, in our um, cafeterias, in our vending machines. We have millions of food courts and and Panda Express and Subway and Jamba Juice, and they all voluntarily participated in, all of our vendors did, in making this move. And it's supporting the whole, um, uh, not only our, our employees, but also patients, the families. You know, when you go to the hospital, uh, and you have a family member in the hospital, you're basically captive, right? Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. You've had a family member in the hospital. You have nowhere to go. And if, if the food environment in that hospital is junk, if your your kid is in for being treated for diabetic coma and you're in the hospital with that kid for several days and the only thing you can get is junk food, that's a real problem. Yep. And so what's been very um, encouraging is uh, to see the tremendous interest in the health sector uh, from we've been called by hospitals, universities, literally Australia, Poland, uh, people in Poland calling us to say, how did you do that? Did it work? Did it make a difference? Uh, and so that we, we, we're hoping that this will be something that um, the health sector really can be show some leadership in. It's a, a really a private sector solution be, because if employers and, and health and hospitals and uh, if, if a, a large sector of our economy can say, look, this is a simple change we can make, uh, we're hoping that, that that it will spread spontaneously without anybody having to um, uh, get uh, draconian. Yeah. yeah, no, no, no government interference. This mm. is a private choice that employers... Uh, and, and, and one of the big questions on everyone's mind now is what would be the long-term health care savings? Think of if you're an employer, uh, you have a large population of people you're paying for insurance, their health insurance, even within a few years, if they reverse their medical, metabolic disease, you're going to see massive mm-hmm. savings in, in health care costs. They don't have to go in maybe for as many people for insulin injections anymore. Yeah. Uh, they're not going to develop chronic illnesses. And um, the other exciting thing that we found was that uh, our co- sales of beverages were basically flat during the first year. And this is most likely uh, because there were so many healthy alternatives that we could put in refrigerators in our, in, in our retail stores and uh, in our cafeterias. Uh, we did a very careful search over a hundred different unsweetened teas, uh, flavored waters, all sorts of things that people can drink uh, that are refreshing and delicious and don't harm their health. And so bottom line didn't really get impacted and your conscious decision to do this actually is transforming the health of the entire campus. I mean, that's so we're doing this whole series on conscious capitalism right now, and so this is a mar- huh? this is a market-driven decision that really shifted things. And, and I want to see these ripples into all the industries, right? Like I think it was CVS. I don't want to give them credit if they didn't get it. But one of them said, you know, why are we we're health we're a drugstore? Why are we selling cigarettes? Same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and I think for our campus and our medical center, it was really um, almost dare I say a moral decision or an ethical decision. Yep. If we're exclusively a health sciences university, we have a, the top school of dentistry here. 
<laughs> why pushing <would> sugar possibly <laughs> be encouraging people to bathe their teeth in sugar that rots right. their teeth why would we possibly want to be doing that so for us it was very much um, a decision about who we are and what we stand for but even any private sector uh, entity any employer cares about the people in their organization. Mm -hmm. And I think the same argument can be made, especially given that we didn't lose money. We, you know, we worried. I mean, I know our, our chief financial officer was very worried that we were going to lose money on beverage sales. But the reality is everybody's going to drink something. When you go in to buy your sandwich at lunch, you're going to buy a drink. And so when you, and this has been borne out in the studies of uh, where they've taxed soda in Berkeley and in Mexico. Uh, sugary beverage sales go down, bottled water consumption goes up. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that because people are going to drink something. It's habitual. You're used to it. And uh, I've talked to many crowds around UCSF given um, guest lectures and grand rounds and so forth. And I'll ask how many people noticed <laughs> that we we stopped selling sugary beverages and, and a substantial number of people uh, will not raise their hands. Because it's subtle enough, you you know, it's not like you go into the uh, restaurants on campus and there's nothing to buy. Right. And and so this is, I think, a, um, a misnomer that uh, that that if we aren't selling sugar and, and sugar water, people won't drink anything. Right. Uh, that just has not been borne out in in the research so, or in our experience. Well, that, which is even better than that, right? Because research, research can miss predictions. Your experience is, is yes. gold, right? So there's a couple things here, and this is, okay, so a cynical person would say, effectively, this would be bad for your hospital business because within five to 10 years, there's less diabetic complications coming in <laughs> for the medical business, right? <laughs> so That's a pretty cynical person. Right, but, uh, yeah. but you we, know, that is a full circle thing. That we're, we're not transplanting more livers. Right, right, so the business <laughs> yeah. Of medicine is what it is, but I don't think anyone wants to be transplanting livers. We want to be talking about epigenetics. We want to be talking about kind of you know curing curing other epigenetics. things. Yeah, yes, yeah. Exactly. We're all we're all sitting here. Yeah. Why would we want? Uh, you know, these are preventable diseases, not even hard to prevent. Yeah. Uh, in in our current food environment, maybe they are hard to prevent. I I think that's the piece mm. of the um of the 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 story that I think kind of gets obscured um, in the public discourse. This, you know, it, people very quickly jump to this idea, it's all about nanny state and government has to tinker in people's individual choices. But when you really back up and look at the situation, you start noticing that somebody is tinkering in our choices and it's not government, it's food companies mm -hmm. that want to sell us hyper palatable foods that are habit forming, they're competing for shelf space, they're competing to make it eye level. They're competing to market it and push it on our kids. And they're not, they're not pushing broccoli, mm -hmm. right? They're not, they're not aggressively uh, trying to get our kids hooked on apples. Mm -hmm. They're not that's addictive. That's important to notice. Yeah. That is constra constraining our choices. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I call limited choices. When you can't, when 84% of the stuff in your grocery store is sugar added to it, you have a very small, limited set of choices in terms of what you're going to buy. And I don't think personally, why should I, as a consumer, have to shop around the perimeter, go out of my way to buy something that's healthy right. and delicious? Why should I have to do that? Right. Let the companies uh, you know, uh, go to the extra trouble. And so this whole discussion around choice to me is kind of upside down and backwards. I'm not so sure we've got choice. I think my grandmother had better mm -hmm. choices over what she ate than I do. Well, I mean, the, the odds are stacked against. I mean, they have, they have gajillions of dollars in neuroscience and colors and smells and textures and all sorts of really insidious things that are really stacked against us. I'd, I'd like to actually speak to that. We just talked, you know, before we got on camera here, we were speaking about this little thing that happened in the industry and um, how there was some kind of bot science that came out against. So, so I'd love for you to share that because this is, yeah. this is important to understand that this is what happens. Well, we, we, um, 
we have some some of the researchers here at UCSF are um, conducting uh, what we call industry documents research, and UCSF has been the home to the uh, a worldwide resource, which is a digital library of documents from tobacco corporations. They're required to, um, on a regular basis, to give their internal documents to the UCSF library where they're archived, digitized, and put online so that any member of the public, any journalist, any academic, anybody interested in what's going on behind the veil of the tobacco industry can look inside and see in their own words what they're up to. And this was part of a master settlement agreement across, uh, 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 where the tobacco companies got sued and basically agreed to do this as part of the conditions of the, the settlement. Uh, it turns out that there are other sources out there for documents like this, and we've started to uh, look into food industry documents, food company documents, and uh, try to understand in a similar way how is it that food companies operate to uh, manipulate our choices to uh, get, do they, do they intentionally try to get us hooked on hyperpalatable foods and so forth? And uh, some of the materials we have are historical and have been very enlightening. We have a, 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 a pretty sizable cache of documents on the main trade organization for the beet and cane sugar producers, uh, currently called the Sugar Association. And uh, these documents go way back uh, into the 50s. Uh, the sugar, and so we can really understand how the trade organizations for uh, the sugar industry have been, uh, uh, what their agenda has been, what they've been, what they've been up to. And, and uh, a big uh, revelation from this line of research is that they've done uh, historically and currently as well, a considerable amount of meddling in the scientific enterprise and even in the uh, funding of federally funded research in the medical field. So the first paper that uh, we published in this area demonstrated that in the 1970s, the Sugar Association wrote 78% of the strategic plan for the NIH around dental uh, disease. And this was a strategic plan that that steered the, the course of dental disease for a decade and a half. It had, it very carefully uh, was uh, set up to avoid any mention or any research on dietary sugars. It had scientists in labs trying to find a vaccine to prevent cavities, <laughs> as opposed to just a simple thing, right? Don't, don't, don't bathe your food in sugar. <laughs> like every mom knows that. But right. no, we needed a vaccine, right? And so that was the first uh, piece that came out on, uh, from this archive. A more recent one uh, that, that uh, just got published uh, towards the end of last year showed that, shows that um, in the mid-60s, uh, the Sugar Association approached a team of elite scientists at Harvard University in the nutrition field and paid them $50,000 to uh, publish a review paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the most prestigious US uh, medical journal. And the review uh, systematically assessed the evidence that uh, uh, what, you know, asked the question, what causes cardiovascular disease, heart disease? And the review concluded that the dietary villain was cholesterol and saturated fats and we need not worry about sugar. Now, this paper uh, came out in the New England Journal in the mid-60s. Right about 1970, we started to see the anti-fat craze, uh, where the snack well <laughs> generation, <laughs> where we were all eating margarine, not butter, and we were uh, eating cookies that had no fat but were loaded with sugar, and boom, we've got this massive obesity epidemic, really the beginning of the obesity epidemic was the early 70s. And, uh, and so th this really raises, this line of research really raises some very profound questions about how industry uh, and its trade organizations can and do meddle in science, meddle in federal agencies, 
that are supposed to be neutral and focused on health and health promotion. Uh, there was a recent uh, scandal at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention where it was determined that uh, key senior people in the CDC were uh, funded by Coca-Cola and the beverage industries and were giving them all sorts of information and trying to steer policy. People uh, got fired a week later or got quit a week later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we're starting to see um, the the ways in which industry has deeply penetrated the scientific community, scientific enterprise, in order to distort uh, the facts around what's good for our health. And this is a, 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 a issue of tremendous concern. Uh, industry will come back and say, and we, we had quite a bit of discussion uh, in the media, on, on in the uh, news media, and the uh, TV news and so forth with uh, spokespeople for the Sugar Association when this paper of ours came out and they say, well, today we're all just fine. Uh, scientists are required to report their scientific conflicts of interest when they publish uh, um, papers in scientific journals. Uh, ironically, the Harvard scientists who... Uh, um, wrote that review in the 60s in the New England Journal of Medicine were and were paid by the Sugar Association to do so, did declare scientific conflicts of interest. They declared all of their funders except one, the Sugar Association. <laughs> they neglected to point out that they had been funded by the, uh, by the Sugar Association. So I'm not, many of us are not convinced that, uh, mm. that, what the public is hearing around nutrition advice is neutral scientific information. Mm. We A lot of it's tainted. Yeah, well, listen, I think prostitution is older than medicine as a profession. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, this is what we're dealing with. This is what we fight is, um, you know, so let's get clear about this. You're at UCSF. You've looked at all the literature, your colleagues, there's a huge board of people here. I'm looking at all these doctors and dentists and people that, that are part of this sugar science understanding. Is sugar bad for our health? <laughs> right? I mean, come on, like that's it. Why UCSF, yeah. why UCSF decided to um, uh, sponsor the Sugar Science yeah. Initiative. Uh, there was just a need to get scientists together who don't have scientific conflicts of interest, who have mm-hmm. never taken money from any uh, from vested interests. A scientific conflict of interest is when the uh, somebody who paid me has a financial stake in the outcomes of my research, mm-hmm. in what I conclude in my research. And so uh, UCSF organized uh, um, uh, about a dozen scientists who have no conflicts of interest to review the body of literature around specific um, disease outcomes and sugar consumption and to report in a pretty uh, user-friendly way uh, what, is, what is our conclusion. Is, is there a link between sugar consumption and diabetes? Yes or no? Industry denies it. Uh, the Dietary Guidelines Committee that is uh, organized by the U- U.S. government they say there is a connection. Who, who am I to believe? Mm-hmm. And so sugar science is a, a resource, a public education resource sponsored by UCSF, sugarscience.org, where people can go and get uh, information that's been, or, been uh, looked at for conflicts of interest as well as uh, the robustness of the evidence. Do we have a substantial amount of evidence to say yes Sugary beverage consumption leads to obesity. Remarkably, the beverage uh, industry continues to deny that sugary beverages cause weight gain or obesity. Mm. Yeah. And they fund scientists to, to draw this conclusion as well and try to get it published in the peer-reviewed mm. literature. So there's a need for somebody to kind of cut through all of that d- discussion and say, look, we're independent scientists and, and we looked at the literature and here's what we think. 
Yeah, I mean, look, we, we might be looking at uh, an era where shortly you can only buy these sugary beverages at liquor stores and, you know, <laughs> parts of restaurants where you can go drink this stuff. I don't know, but I mean, it's, it, it's you know, look, people can decide for themselves, and I understand the whole, like, you know, this whole thing about, you know, big government. I get it. But the the odds are stacked against us. These are addictive substances, and it's just they're not they're not playing fair. And you know, children in particular are being exposed to things that you know it's hard, it's really hard to undo. You know, especially if they're they've already gotten to diabetes. So uh, I know we get a couple we get a couple questions from our audience, and I want to make sure that we honor that. So I'm going to kick over to Sean over here. Yeah. My yeah. Sean Cam. Hi. Um, so um, MK said that she hears the liver is one of the mo most resilient organs in our body. So does mineral consumption and absorption aid in like the liver recovery um, alongside getting rid of fructose and stopping to drink? You mineral, know, mineral absorption consumption, and consumption. Yeah. yeah. Did you hear all that? Okay. So yep. I, yeah, I did. I think the question is, uh, uh, is about if I stop drinking um, sugary beverages and I cut back on my sugar consumption and keep it within 10% of daily calories, which is the current limit. It's not like the uh, the committees that set dietary guidelines are saying don't have any added sugar. It's just keep it within a limit. Uh, for women, we say six teaspoons a day or less. For men, nine teaspoons a day uh, or less, which is when you think about it, that's a lot of sugar. <laughs> if, you're, mm -hmm. if you were to add it to a glass of water, six teaspoons would make it taste pretty darn sweet. Yeah. Uh, the uh, you could essentially. You, you use up your, your bank account of sugar as a man by just drinking one soda. So that gives you a feeling for how much sugar is in there. But one of the remarkable things in answer to the um, viewer's question uh, about the liver is that it heals. It can, as long as you're not uh, into full-blown what we call NASH or cirrhosis, uh, where there's tremendous scarring, the liver has a remarkable capacity to regenerate, uh, uh, unlike some organs in our bodies. And so uh, liver damage, uh, as long as it's not too far along, is reversible. For a person who is, um, uh, has had a, a, a liver scan and knows they have NAFLD, the most important thing would be to reduce or cut out all trans fats and added sugars. That's going to give your liver a breather and a chance to regenerate. And uh, in fact, one of the uh, cutting edge uh, surgeries that we do here at UCSF is what they call a partial liver transplant, where a surgeon will take a healthy donor's portion of their liver and put it into a person with um, a failed liver. And the liver just regenerates very quickly. In both people. And so in both people, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the donor, literally very quickly. Yeah. And so it's, it's a remarkable organ that way. It's not that, it's probably not so true for the pancreas um, and, and for people who have developed insulin resistance. Uh, but for the liver aspect of what sugar does to our bodies, uh, we're really lucky to be able mm -hmm. to reverse that damage. Anyone who's um, overweight or obese, anyone who eats a poor diet, eats a lot of processed junk food, uh, is very much at risk for, you know, some degree of fatty liver and should be just like someone who's drinking too much. Um, more than one drink a day for women, more than two for men, it, uh, you're putting your liver at, at risk. And so reducing that will... will um, is a really smart idea. And, and taking minerals or anything else for regenerative support? I mean, I, I'm not sure. That, to my mind, uh, I'm not, I'm not a, a nutritionist, and I wouldn't want to speak to that. I, I know the, the liver stores uh, vitamin D. Um, you'd need to speak to a nutritionist about um, what is what about minerals. On the front uh, Cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you got another question? So um, besides sugary drinks, after that, what's the next thing that we should get rid of? Okay, so assuming we've gotten rid of sugary drinks, what, where's, the, where's the next rung? Like, what's the next thing to get rid of that's, that's you know, ca causing some of these problems? For an individual. For an individual, yeah. Okay, okay so yeah. I quit soda, and now how can I even do better? Oh, if you've quit soda, you have done a, a remarkable favor to your body. Uh, that, uh, sugary beverages are about 36% 
of the total added sugar consumed in the American diet. Wow. So that's why uh, the public health community is so um, uh, focused around the sh- one of the reasons why uh, the public health community is advising the pop- public to cut down on those sugary drinks. So you have done yourself an enormous favor. Um, diet drinks are have a, um, a, a somewhat questionable um, uh, scientific track record. There's some evidence that uh, diet drinks, uh, saccharin, uh, sucralose, uh, these uh, artificial sweeteners actually are not the best long-term substitute for um, added sugars. That they actually, ironically, produce weight gain and a condition called glucose intolerance, which is very closely related to insulin resistance, namely diabetes. And the mechanism scientists think is associated with these, uh, and I know this is bad news because a lot of people who have worked so hard to get off the sugar, they use the diet drinks as a substitute. And while uh, that's a great thing to do on a short-term basis because your palate has just been sensitized to hyper-sweet stuff uh, and you can titrate off of, off of the sugar that way, probably best to let go of the diet drinks if you can or at least not drink them in, in, in heavy doses because of this evidence. This isn't, a, this isn't um, there's still controversy in the field around this, but there's some pretty compelling studies of animals as well as humans that suggest that the artificial sweeteners are damaging, uh, are, lead to weight gain and, and glucose intolerance. The uh, mechanism is the, uh, what we call the microbiome, the uh, healthy gut bacteria that uh, it's essential to good health, immunity, and it turns out that uh, what the scientists think is true is that these artificial sweeteners actually damage those healthy bacteria, and, and that healthy, that microbiome is supportive of our health in very, very important profound, impactful ways. Mm. And so our diet is very directly associated with the health of the microbiome. So if you can, uh, what we recommend is to titrate yourself off. Uh, A good strategy, whether it's a sugary drink or a diet drink, is to just start mixing half and half uh, uh, fizzy water with the drink. Get yourself used to a lower uh, dose uh, and get to the point where you're adding fresh fruit rather in lemon, rather uh, uh, the sweet stuff or the artificially sweetened stuff. And I swear to you, if you do that, <laughs> you will take one little sip of a soda and you'll go, ah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or you'll drink a, a diet, and you'll go, gosh, that tastes terrible. Yeah. You will not believe what a difference it makes. Uh, our palates in America have just become uh, high, just, uh, um, sensitized to the sweet factor. And if you, you cut this stuff out of your diet, you'll be in your kid's diet. It's remarkable. Um, you, what, what, you, when you realize how sweet, yeah. uh, many of these foods and beverages are. Yeah. And to know how far off we've gone. I got, I got one follow-up question. We're almost out of time, but it's an important one because I've also heard a lot of people kind of lean into this too much and say, oh, you said fructose is bad for fatty liver, therefore don't eat any fruit, right? And I've seen people take this this kind of step and go into some of these kind of excessive uh, conversations. So I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Thanks for bringing that up because uh, it's it's always hard, and especially with nutrition, uh, when you're trying to communicate to the public, uh, you, it's really easy for uh, the message to get distorted or lost. Yeah. And, and we're talking about pretty subtle aspects of diet and nutrition and what we know scientifically. Uh, the evidence on fruit is uh, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, fresh fruit, whole fruit, not even in a smoothie, whole fruit, chewed, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, is the way to eat it. And the reason is because uh, it's going to take you a long time to chew through uh, the number of apples that will wind up in an apple juice or in a smoothie. And the uh, sugars and the fructose remains often 
the hypothesis that David Ludwig has, has put forward, at, um, he's at Harvard, a nutrition scientist, is that uh, it may even be that um, some of those, those, that fructose stays inside the membrane of the plant um, cell and passes through our system through the small intestine and doesn't even get absorbed. Hmm. And so when that, food, when that fructose comes uh, in fiber, uh, with a lot of fiber, um, so it, in the plant membrane, chewed in our mouths, it slowly uh, goes through our system and it just, it comes with packaged with phytonutrients, uh, nutrients that we don't even have names for. Mm. I mean, there are, uh, we don't even know how many nutrients there are in the, that make plants colorful and tasty and, and um, flavorful and smell beautiful. Those are all healthy uh, new things that uh, nutrients for our, you know, that can uh, serve to fight uh, metabolic disease. And so, uh, and, and if you look at the cohort studies and long-term trials, people who eat fruit tend to have lower risk for cardiovascular disease later in life mm -hmm. and uh, controlling on other factors. So there's very good evidence that uh, fruit is heart healthy. And probably a lot of it has to do with uh, the fiber and the micronutrients that come contained in the fruit. And the fructose just is, uh, that fiber is going to slow down the uh, processing, the speed at which your body's going to metabolize the fructose. And so it's not like slamming your liver with a 28-ounce Gatorade. Right. It's slowly. Um, uh, and so, and they're a wonderful source of these other nutrients as well. But I'm, you know, I'm only going to drink organic Gatorade, so I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, you it's an organic Gatorade now. Of course there this is. is and the this is sugar, yeah. yeah. Gluten-free cookies yeah. and organic Gatorade problem well, solved, is, right? It's just this waving of the wand and just kind of just, it's just, just words. I call it organa junk oh. and it's a new market, right? Mm -hmm. Because one. there's a opposite and equal reaction. And so the, our population, because of uh, getting the word out there, all these public health officials and uh, dietary committees saying, People, stop drinking the sugary drinks. They're not good for you. We've seen a 25% decline in soda consumption since its peak in the late 90s. And so what are these companies going to do? They're going to make organic Gatorade. They're going to turn it into a marketing opportunity. Uh, we have to be smarter than that. Yeah. And we have to realize that just because it says organic or healthy on the label, doesn't they can put whatever they want on the front of that package. Mm -hmm. There's We don't have laws that require them. Uh, I mean, there have been... Uh, some lawsuits around some of these extreme claims, <laughs> but they, they we, the front of package labeling is is poorly regulated, and so don't believe what's on the front of the package. Turn it around and look at the label, and if you're a woman and it's got you know 28 grams of sugar in it, that's your total daily dose, <laughs> yeah. and so think about it, 25 grams, 38 for a man. And so it's very important to turn that package around. And just because it says organic doesn't mean anything. Amen. Doc, thank you so much. The, the, the website is called sugarscience.org. Um, I love the work that you're doing. I encourage anyone who's in a university school, any, any organization to kind of follow this step that UCSF has taken. And look, the, the market will drive the change. And you know, at the end of the day, no one's got a gun to your head saying buy this bottle of Coca-Cola. Exactly. So as a consumer, you got to you got to make decisions too. And so the ecosystem at UCSF makes it way more conducive to do so. And so we can work together with businesses to do it. I want to thank you for being on the show. Any other questions, we'll get in the chat thread and we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll forward them over to you. Thank you for being here. Let me know what you think. I'll see you on the next episode.